0: This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. All right, good morning. My name is Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Zach, thank you so much. Natalia and Praise Team, thank you so much for leading us in worship this morning. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. We're so glad to have you if you're visiting particularly. Um, we are just a small Presbyterian church trying to figure it out, and we are so glad to have you guys braving the, um, you know, sicknesses and everything else, coronavirus, all that stuff, to be here to worship our God. We're gl- really glad to have you guys. We are right now in the middle of a—well, no, we, we just started last week the sermon series on the seven last sayings of Jesus Christ um, as he was being crucified— and Ronnie, our, our senior pastor who's on vacation this week, um, he made this point um, last week in his sermon where he said, you know, we, we often think of wh- the times that we're under stress, like if we're stressed, it becomes an, a blanket excuse for all, of our, all our behavior. Kind of this like, oh, you know, I snapped at my wife, but I was stressed, so, you know, it's excusable. That's, that's not the real me, right, is what we're saying. And what Ronnie was, made the point of last week is, you know, actually... The opposite is probably true. Like the moments in our lives when we, when kind of the emotional intensity, the, the stress, the anxiety, um, actually, it actually strips away our pretenses. It doesn't allow us to continue to keep up the mask that we have kind of, you know, manicured and everything in our lives. And in fact, it's in those times of stress that we're probably actually seeing the real us, Right? Now, what a powerful way to understand these last words of Jesus Christ. Because he is, as he's hanging on the cross, he is experiencing intense, intense physical and mental stress, intense pain, and yet what we see coming out of his mouth is words of comfort, words of forgiveness, words of love. And if we are going to reflect this season this Lent season on, the, on, you know, leading up to Good Friday and to Easter, we're going to reflect on the man who died on the cross for our sins. What better way to do that than to get, what better way to get into his heart, to know who he truly is than to reflect on the words of him as he was experiencing intense pain and stress for us. And so that's what we're doing in this series, is we're trying to get to know the heart of Jesus Christ himself and learn how to follow him. Our passage today is from Luke chapter 23. It's the second half of the passage that we preached on last week. Um, and so if you'll turn your Bibles there. I'm, I'm listening right now to a podcast about the Cold War. I didn't grow up during the Cold War. Um, I was born right, basically right before it ended. And so I, I kind of miss this whole phase of our history, of, of American history. But I'm listening to this podcast on it, and if you know anything about the Cold War, um, or if you're kind of a history buff, you might know the name Peter Robinson. Now, Peter Robinson, he works for the Hoover Institute out of Stanford. He's kind of a smart guy, you know. But in the, in the 1980s, he was a speechwriter for President Ronald Reagan, okay? He, um, when he was about 30 years old, right, 30 years old, he wrote, in 1987, he wrote the speech that would become one of the most famous speeches in the history of the United States, but certainly in the history of the Cold War. He wrote the speech that Ron, in which Ronald Reagan said the words, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall." Do you guys know what i 'm talking Do you guys have you heard that phrase? This guy, when he 's thirty years old, wrote that speech like one of the most important speeches of the whole Cold War, and of course. Ronald Reagan, he gave that speech as he was standing in front of the Berlin Wall. Now, the Berlin Wall symbolized that it was, it was in actuality the division of the city of Berlin. But what it represented for the world was the division of the world, right? Of the east and the west and the... the, the um, the the cultural divide, the like the 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 divide of values, the divide, the the kind of freedom versus captivity, the like right. This this was a, this symbolized a world at war, a world of tension, a world in which the future was not certain, in which it could end at any minute. That's what the Berlin Wall symbolized, and so um, Peter Robinson, he's thinking about this speech. Um, he's trying to decide, okay, what are we going to say? What is Ronald Reagan going to say as he stands in front of this wall? And the State Department, there's a lot of controversy about that line, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There's a lot of controversy because the State Department was like, don't mention the wall. Like, don't mess things up, right? The Berliners are used to the wall. Like, so don't even mention it. It's not worth it. Like, leave them in their reality, is what he's saying, right there saying to him. Now Peter uh, Robinson he he goes and he walks around Berlin a little bit and he starts to talk to the Berliners and what he realizes is that the people in the street didn't have that same sentiment the people on the street longed for a world in which that wall was torn down both literally and symbolically that the world would once again would would not be at war anymore that there would be peace that there would be hope of a future and so he left that line in there. And of course, actually, the guy who's interviewing him in this podcast, he's an American. He grew up during the Cold War. He remembers it all. And he remembers when he heard that speech live. And he says, you know, Peter, when I heard that speech, it was the first time that I could conceive of a world that wasn't split in two. It's the... I, it's, he says, no, it's not just that I could believe, you know, conceive of a future in which the Berlin Wall doesn't exist. It was the first time that I could conceive of a future at all, because they were so convinced that like, this reality is going to end in a disaster and nuclear war, right? That's what the Berlin Wall symbolized, is the threat of nuclear war. But Peter Robinson's words, spoken by President Reagan, they ushered in this new reality right they ushered in a future that people could hope in that they could see that they could something beyond what was presently the case our passage today is about two thieves and one is stuck in the present reality one is so blinded by the circumstances of the moment that he's unable to see a better future he's unable to see anything else besides that and then the second thief He's able to see. He's able to see in the bloody body of the man next to him, to him the hope of a future that is different, a hope of something bigger than what he's experiencing in that moment, which is horrific, crucifixion, right? And so that's kind of what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at these thieves, like what's their experience of of Christ, What is going on? What do they long for from him? And so we're going to look at the thieves, and then we're going to look at Jesus. And those are kind of my two points, the thieves and Jesus, all right? It's really simple, thieves, Jesus, and that's what we're going to do. So let's actually dive straight into our text here. If you would, please stand with me out of reverence to God's word. And we're going to read Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. Hear now the reading of God's word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And this is where we're going to be focusing today. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is what Jesus says to him. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's good word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. Okay, so we're going to start by looking at the thieves. And as I was reading this passage this week, something really interesting struck me. And it's this idea that the two thieves are both asking for the same thing from Jesus. They're both asking for Jesus to save them. But what they mean by that is dramatically different. Okay? So the first thief, what does he mean by this? Well, right, there are three groups of people that are mocking Jesus in this scene. The first, you got the rulers, you got the the soldiers, and then, of course, you have the thief. They're all mocking Jesus. And what's the common refrain? The common refrain is save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. Like, what? Save yourself if you are who you say you are. But, of course, the thief has a little bit of a different. Um, refrain. He's, look at verse 39. Look what he says. He says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Do you guys know how you know how some people say that like at every in every joke there's like a kernel of truth, even if it's very deep? Like makes us a little uncomfortable sometimes. Well, I think that's a little bit what's going on. Like he's mocking Jesus, but he's also serious. He's like, Yeah, save yourself. And me, if you can, please save me from this, from this torture. Save me from this horrific death. Right? He's mocking, but he's also very serious. He truly wants to be saved from his, cruc- his own crucifixion. But here's kind of the tragic thing. What he wants, Jesus is not offering. Jesus is not offering him an end to his crucifixion. That's not, not actually on the table. And you know what's interesting? Uh, the second thief, right? That we're going to look at him in a moment, but the second thief, right? He expresses faith in Jesus Christ. He is saved eternally, and yet Jesus does not offer him an end to his crucifixion. Jesus is not offering an end to their crucifixion. You see, and and, and that's the sum total of what the first thief can actually conceive of what Jesus can do. He's like, save me. But the only thing he means by that is get me off this cross. And Jesus is like, I'm sorry, I'm actually not offering that right now. You see, the first thief could only understand his salvation in terms of his earthly existence. And in fact, actually, no one else in the scene can understand their salvation in any other terms other than earthly existence, right? The rulers, right? The religious rulers, what did they want? They wanted a Messiah to come and take over Rome, to restore their place of glory, to get back their land, to kick out the oppressors, to, to raise them up again, to bring back their wealth and, and influence and import, all these things. And what is Jesus? He's not offering that. That's not on the table. He's not doing that. That's not what Jesus is doing. That is not the salvation that Jesus is offering. They can only st- understand salvation in terms of their earthly existence, and when Jesus does not deliver, what do they do? They turn on him. They mock him. They rail against him. What they're saying is, if you don't if you can't give me what I want, then I'm done with you. You're a clown. Like what are you doing? But I think it's worth us like sitting a little bit with this first thief because I think, you know, I think that we can kind of dismiss him as a bad, you know, he's just a bad guy. He doesn't doesn't get it, you know, whatever. But in reality, we're actually a whole lot more like him than we think. In a lot of ways, we understand our salvation in terms of an earthly existence. Now, this is like really painfully aware in something like that we call the prosperity gospel, right? The prosperity gospel says um, a pastor once told Oprah, "Jesus died so that you can have an abundant life, right? Jesus is all about you having an awesome life all the time, and that's all that Jesus is about. That's what the prosperity gospel says, and." If you, I mean, if you spent any time here at Trinity, you know that we, we're not interested in that. Jesus is not interested in that. That is not, that is absolutely not what Jesus is here to do. <coughs> Pardon me. But here's the thing. Um, we actually, the prosperity gospel, like in its crassest form, we can say no to. But it actually creeps into our faith in a whole lot more subtle ways And those are the ways that we need to be particularly careful. Just to give you an example of this, there's this one thing you'll see um, is that Jesus becomes our therapist, right? Jesus Christ is my therapist. He's here. His main purpose in my life is to free me from anxiety, to help me think, think positive thoughts about myself, to banish my inner demons, these sorts of things. Jesus Christ is my therapist. And let's be honest... It's one of the tricky things is that some of that's true, right? Jesus Christ genuinely cares about your anxieties. He really cares about them. Those really matter. Like, and he is a, compa- we're actually going to talk about Jesus' compassion next week. He is, his compassion is never ending. He wants you to be free from anxieties. But he is not primarily a therapist. He is a king. And if he is your therapist and it doesn't work out for you, what do you do? You find a new therapist, but if he's your king, you cannot just jettison him when he doesn't serve your purposes. And here's the thing: if Jesus, if you cannot envision Jesus' role as something bigger than kind of your temporal existence, then he will only ever be big, he will never be bigger than your temporal existence. He will never be able to be bigger than your particular anxieties. And what's happening in this story is that Jesus is a whole lot bigger than this first thief thinks that he wants him to be. Will Jesus free you from your anxieties? I don't know. I certainly hope that he will. And we, you, you, we will pray that he will. And he can. He absolutely can. But he might not. And, and the reason for that is because he is doing something that is much bigger than your anxieties. He cares about them. But he, like, your anxieties might actually be the means by which he, which he gets you where you want, he wants you to go. Be, he might actually leave you in your anxieties because he cares so much for you and you can't see, if you can only see your anxieties, then, then, then it, Christ will not be big enough for what he is trying to do. Will, will Jesus heal your chronic pain? Maybe in his mercy he will, praise the Lord. But maybe in his mercy he will not. And you need a God who is big enough You need a Savior who is big enough for both of those circumstances to make sense. And if you only understand Jesus in terms of your temporal discomforts, your temporal existence right now, he will never be big enough to truly save you in eternity. Okay, so what is Jesus offering? Let's look at the second thief to find out. There's two things I want us to consider here um, about the second thief. The first is, what does he believe about himself? And the second is, what does he ask of Jesus? So what does he believe about himself? Um, Look there in verse 40. He says to the other thief, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. What's he saying there? He's saying, listen, I'm getting what I deserve. Like, I, I deserve this. this. This cross isn't crazy. This makes sense. And what does he say next? He says, But this man has done nothing wrong. I am guilty, but this man is innocent. And it's at this point that we say, like, exactly. Like, that is the most basic message of the gospel, is that you and I are guilty, and, an, and there's an innocent man who died in our place, right? This, and this, this thief, he gets it. He didn't go to Sunday school. He didn't, like, read a tract. He just knows, I know that I am guilty, and I know that I need an innocent person to save me. He knows he is guilty, and he needs someone who's innocent to save him. What does he ask of Jesus? Look in verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Um, is this what you expected him to say? I almost expected him to ask Jesus into his heart, right? Or to receive Christ into his life or something like that. But what he says is he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, this is important because I I do think, um, I do think, like, we, we need faith. We need to receive Christ. We need these things. But oftentimes when we talk about our faith, it's this, it's kind of like, I have decided to make Jesus the king of my life. Like, I have decided that now's the time. I've decided that Jesus gets to be part of my life, and what's happened? and and the thief's words they show us that our salvation is a whole lot that he the thief, oh excuse me, losing my place here, guys. The thief's words show us that he believes that salvation is much, much bigger, bigger than his existence. bigger It's it's he's saying, Lord, you are the king. Let me come into your kingdom. He's not saying, Jesus, I'm going to make you king. He's saying, you are already the king, and your kingdom is a kingdom that I want to be a part of. Now, what is that kingdom all about? It is a, it is a kingdom in which Jesus can die, in which this man can die, and Jesus the king can stand, who's next to him can also die, and yet he can still reign. Right? This man can actually face death and truly die, and yet he can be saved. Like That is the kind of kingdom that we want to be a part of. It is much bigger than our earthly existence. Paul says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from, a de- from the dead, you will be saved. Not that you make Jesus king, but that you recognize that he is king. And if you do that, you will be ushered into a kingdom that is much, much bigger than your temporal existence, a kingdom in which you can die and still be saved. That is a kingdom that is eternal, that does not end, that is not privy to our whims and our, and our, and our like little hobby horses and it's much, much bigger. And that is the kingdom. That is the salvation that Jesus is offering to this thief. And what does Jesus say to him? Absolutely. Absolutely. I offer you something so much bigger. I'm about saving you in such... I'm, I'm saving you for something so much bigger. I'm saving you for eternity. So what is Jesus offering? He's offering him eternal salvation. He's offering him something much bigger. And he gives it fully to this thief. He, the thief gets it all. Okay. Let's look, let's look at Jesus, our second point. We've looked at the two thieves. Let's look at Jesus. What is it that Jesus said? I what sort of pastor reflect. He said, um, Why is it that when people fall in love... They write such terrible poetry. I mean, I wrote Cecilia some poems when we were dating. They are—it's an offense to the genre of poetry to call them poetry. They—they they were terrible. I mean, that, right? They—they're terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, but there's something about the experience of being in love. That wants that causes us to want like to to we we want something to to be, to be transcendent right we want our that's why we use exalt, the exalted language of poetry because we want our love to be exalted we believe that it's we're, it's something more right and of course this has been codified in pop music for uh, for decades listen to these lyrics Dan Fogelberg do you guys know who Dan Fogelberg is yeah um, He says, longer than there have been fishes in the ocean, longer than there have been stars up in the heavens, I've been in love with you. Right? Before there were fish, I was in love with you. Savage Garden, 90s. Anyone? Do you guys know this? Um, I know that it might sound more than a little crazy, but I believe I knew that I loved you before I met you. Transcendent, right? Or um, the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon soundtrack. Coco Lee, listen to this. If the years take away every memory that I have, I would still know the way that would lead me back to your side. The light that I see in your eyes will burn there always, lit by the love that we have shared before time. What is it about love that wants us to like, transcend space and time? What is that? What's that desire for something transcendent, that transcendent love, something beyond our, our moment? What is that? Well, you know, the Bible teaches us that the reason we do these things is because we were made for transcendent love. We were made for a love beyond space and time. We were made made with transcendent longings, and we were were meant to have them satisfied. Now look at that, Jesus' response to the second thief. He says truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Is Jesus going to drop him off in Culebra, Flamenco Beach, you know? No, that's not what's going on. Paradise in the Bible is not talking about sun and sand. It's talking about love and a relationship, an eternal relationship. And in fact, um, the, the Greek word for paradise It actually comes out of the Garden of Eden. It's how the Garden of Eden is described. And what happens in the Garden of Eden? God and man walk together in perfect union, they know each other, right? They experience God's love. Adam and Eve do. And so, what Jesus is promising this thief is not, he's not offering him an end to his crucifixion. He's offering him something much better. He's offering him an eternal relationship with God, eternal union with him for eternity. He's offering him something much bigger and much better. And that is what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's offering him forgiveness, but yes, but that forgiveness is a means. A means to a whole new reality. He says, You will be with me in paradise. Those words are words of love, transcendent love. And this is what I, this is like some, this is like particularly powerful to me because, you know, this thief, right? It's not, he wasn't like a good guy, right? He didn't like give his life to, I don't know, philanthropy or something, right? He was a thief. He stole from other people. He wasn't like... And yet, the night before Jesus was crucified, he, he was encouraging his disciples, and if you would turn to John 15, you can see what he said there. He says, listen, you guys need to know that I chose you before you chose me. Or if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is encouraging the Ephesians and he says, listen, God has called to himself a people. And those people will come to him. They will come to him. And what that means, if you, if you like, what that means about this thief is that as he was hanging there in bloody and in pain, his body's aching, before he could even, like, you know, turn his head to the side to speak to Jesus, that gift was already given. What that means is that Jesus is being, Jesus knows that he's being crucified for the man who is being crucified next to him. guys get that? Like you want transcendent love? How about love that has been from all eternity? Love that will not fail. Love that is guaranteed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is transcendent love. Jesus didn't respond to the first thief at all. And he didn't respond to him not just because he was ignoring him or something like that. No, um, he didn't respond to him because he wasn't trying to save himself, right? And I'm sure, like, as the, as the flesh was ripping in his hands and his feet and, like, the intense pain was, like, rushing over him, he was certainly tempted to, and he could have. But he didn't save himself. And the Apolo- and, and Luke, the, the, the author of this gospel, he's, he's very clear He's drawing a very clear juxtaposition. Jesus didn't save himself. Why? Because he was saving you and me. Like he couldn't save himself because if he did, he couldn't save you or me. He couldn't save himself because then he couldn't save that thief on the cross that's next to him. He couldn't guarantee him paradise if if he had saved himself. That's what Luke is drawing is drawing our attention to. And listen, I'm, I'm going to close with this, and, um, and I think this has been um, really important to me this week as I've reflected on this, this passage. Um, my guess is that you have probably done things that make you shudder to think about. Like, you have probably done things that are dark and shameful. It's very likely. Things you don't want to think about, things that no one else knows. And this is what you and I need to hear. The first one, home. The first one in paradise, the first one experiencing that transcendent love of God is a thief. Right? The first one, home, is a thief. Not not a good guy, you know, a thief. You see, Jesus is offering you and me, everyone, a home. No matter your past, he offers you a home. He offers you eternity. The first one home is a thief. And remember what his, his response to Jesus was, I am guilty, I deserve this. Jesus does not, he is innocent. And, you know, I think like, that, is, like, that is the moment of conversion. He is, like, he is recognizing how much he needs Jesus, and he's saying, please save me. I need you. But if you've spent any time at Trinity Church, you know that we actually believe that that is not just like the... the the moment you get into the Christian life, that is the whole of the Christian life. Is saying, Jesus, I am guilty, and I need an innocent. Per- I need you to save me. You know, oftentimes we think that, um, like, we become a Christian, and all Christians are just on this huge upward trajectory, and like we're we're all killing it. Like, right in ten years, we should be able to look and say, man. I'm like, way better. And the Lord does work. He does work to sanctify us. But I think what you'll actually find is that mature Christians actually understand the guilt of their sin much deeper. And they understand the purity and innocence of Christ much deeper. And as they do that, as, as those two, like, they they'd understand how sinful they are and how, how pure and innocent Jesus is. And as they do that, they, the, the cross itself becomes way more beautiful and way bigger and bigger and bigger. And you recognize what Christ is doing is way, way bigger than we even imagined. The thief was a Christian for like 30 minutes, right? He did not, he could not have grasped how deeply guilty he was. But he also did not have a full appreciation. He, he had not grown, had time to grow in his appreciation of how big Christ's mercy and love was for him. Now we have that opportunity as we grow in our faith to do that, to, to grow in our understanding of who God is and what he's done. And, and as we do that, listen, as we do that, these words will be even more comfort- comforting to you. The first one home is a thief. The first one home is a thief. As you rec- like realize that, the- as Christ becomes more beautiful to you, as you recognize your own sinfulness, the f- you need to know the first one home is a thief. Christ loves, can- loves you. He can save you for eternity no matter what you have done. He just says, come to me. Truly, I tell you. Paradise is waiting for you. My love is waiting for you for eternity. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we need to know your love. We need to know what you are doing in our lives. God, we need a vision of you that is so much bigger than our moment in time. God, would you work all things for your glory? Would you bring us finally to that day? when we see you and we know you intimately, personally, face to face. Lord, be faithful to us, we pray in your name. Amen.